in the earlier days of our former church, I remember well one of our more bizarre encounters with demonic spirits. Um, this was not <laughs> this was not the demon we encountered. <laughs> uh, good friends of ours, I'll call them Sam and Gloria, had four children, and their third daughter, I'll call her Vicky. Um, the daughter was colicky from the time she was born, often struggled with sleeplessness, um, was chronically sick, and by the time she was a toddler, would often sleepwalk. Sam and Gloria agonized over her, as you can imagine, parents of four young children, one with special needs, would. Uh, when she was about two or three years old, one night uh, Sam went into Vicky's room and discovered that she wasn't in bed, which wasn't uncommon, so then he went to look for her. And Sam said that he went downstairs to find her in the kitchen, standing on top of their gas stove, in the middle, surrounded by all four burners on high. Well, in a moment of panic, uh, they, they managed to, he managed to get the stove shut off without, uh, any injury. Quite miraculously, she was unharmed. They never figured out how exactly she could have possibly climbed up there at her age, much less get the gas burners on and stand in the middle without being seriously injured or having caught fire. Much less why that would have happened. So we met with Sam and Gloria and Vicky to pray over her and address that demonic oppression. And while nothing dramatic happened in that prayer time, it did mark the immediate relief of those kind of life-threatening circumstances. Now, over the years, I've seen a number of responses to a story like Sam and Gloria's. Uh, first, many modern and secular people today thoroughly doubt that a demon could exist. They believe that they belong to the, the world of myth and folklore, that they are uh, the delusions of superstitious or unenlightened people who haven't caught up with the times, uh, that, that they really haven't fully, fully embraced the truth of medical science. They would say that what we call demonic influence is really mental illness, that a belief in a literal devil or literal demons is not progressive and up-to-date. A second group of people are numbers of Christians and practitioners of other faiths, for that matter, who acknowledge evil but don't go so far as to, to admit to a personal devil or demons. Um, they would say that they may exist in a third world or underdeveloped country, but certainly not here. Thirdly, there's a growing body of people who are intrigued by the supernatural or the paranormal, those things, uh, the phenomena for which medical science or natural science doesn't have an ability to explain. Or um, uh, the, these people are, are quite fascinated often with the darker side, the darker components of such things, and it, what gives rise to the interest in television shows today like Ghost Hunters or UFO or River Monsters or From Beyond. Fourthly, there are Christ followers who embrace an understanding that Jesus and the apostles had of Satan and evil spirits, that they are real, that they're malevolent, and that the church is called to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God 
through preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Now today we're in our roughly third week of our 40-day adventure that we're calling Finding Real Life. It's an extended season of discovery and growth and change as we more fully want to see the kingdom of God come into our lives. It uh, it co- coincides with the historic celebration of Lent, and we'll conclude with an Easter celebration on April the 8th. Our expectations in our 40-day adventure are rooted in three primary prayers for ourselves, that we would experience the real life Jesus said he came to give. Secondly, uh, for prayers for our five friends to experience God's kingdom touch in their lives, five friends that are unchurched or for whom we, we suspect may not know Christ. And then thirdly, for God's kingdom to actually break through into our church family and in all the families that are, are represented in this church. Many of us are strengthening our 40-day adventure experience with some kind of fasting, and I'm just thrilled at the reports of numbers of you who have uh, made it through, and you're, you're sticking to your, your guns on fasting. Fasting is, is a way that reminds us, isn't it, of how, how incredibly weak we are and how desperately we need God. And that's why we celebrate fasting in this period. Um, We've looked at the Gospels, and we've seen so far that real life is freedom from sin and sickness, that God's gifts to us are forgiveness and wholeness. And today we're going to look and discover and see that real life is freedom from demons. So let's pray as we look to God's Word today. Lord, we, we rejoice at the start of this brand new and beautiful day. It's a gift from you, and for that we say thank you. And Lord, as we've already sung, we, we declare that you are good. You are good all the time. And even when the circumstances of our life press against us in a way that makes us want to scream that you're cruel, we know that your word prevails. You are a good God. You're a loving God. And I pray today, Lord, that you would come to reveal yourself, that you are a God who can be trusted, that you are a God who is good and who loves us. And that's the cry of our heart, Lord, to know that that there's something much bigger than the story we're actually living in our day-to-day, work-a-day, get-up-go-to-school lives, that, that we fit into your story, a God who loves his people. And so, Lord, reveal more of your love to us today, more of your provision for us in the kingdom. We welcome you here to put power on your word to our lives, to our families. In your name, amen. Well, Jesus framed his ministry in the context of a struggle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, or light, and the kingdom of darkness, or Satan. In John 10.10, we read these words, that the thief's purpose, Jesus said, is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So specifically, Jesus contrasted the thief, whose work was stealing, killing, destroying, and himself, whose work was to give abundant life or real life, as we like to call it, a rich and satisfying life. Now, in several other places, the Bible offers a sweeping summary statement of Jesus' ministry. In 1 John 3, 8, the apostle writes, But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And in Acts 10, 38, Dr. Luke records, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
So Jesus came as a divine invader to destroy the devil, his demons, and his work, and to do good. As he released men and women and children into the fullness of the real life, the rich and satisfying life of his kingdom. His ministry was marked by continual conflict with Satan and his demons. Why? Because he was establishing the rule of God on the earth that was at that time under the throes of the enemy. First John five nineteen tells us that the earth world system is under the control of the evil one. And the expulsion of demons in particular is perhaps the most dramatic and direct form of this conflict, of the confrontation between the two kingdoms. Matthew's Gospel, the 12th chapter, records an extended um, story that illustrates this in particular. And this is the ministry to which the church is called to continue. And I'd like to, uh, for the purposes of our study today, look at one biblical account in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to open your Bible or your, your cell phones uh, there, uh, we're going to look at Mark 9, verses 9, uh, 14 to 29. And we're going to read this rather lengthy account of the um, child with an evil spirit. Mark 9, we're going to begin in verse 14. The text will be on the screen as well if you'd like to follow. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some of the teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What's all the arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid or weak. And so I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. And when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. and He fell to the ground writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long's this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. So verses 14 to 18, Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down from experiencing what we call the transfiguration on the mountain to find once again 
a large crowd had gathered. Now, the occasion was that the other nine disciples had been unable to cast an evil, or more literally, an unclean spirit out of a young boy, the only son of the father. And this boy would have been extremely important in that culture for social, economic, and hereditary reasons as well. Jesus had commissioned the 12 apostles and later the 72 disciples to cast out evil spirits as they preached the kingdom and and healed the sick. And so the guys are to be credited for doing the job that they had been commissioned to do. And interestingly, all of us who are Christ followers have received the same commission. Mark 16, verse 15 to 17. And then Jesus told them, that would be us, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, and these miraculous signs will follow those that believe. They will cast out demons in my name. So interestingly, the reality of the devil and demons is implicitly accepted as fact by Jesus and his apostles. And we accept this same premise as well. Satan exists. He is literal and real, not an immaterial force or power or evil influence in the world. He's real. He's elsewhere in the Bible referred to as the devil, the accuser, the thief, uh, the deceiver, the prince of this world, at one place, the serpent. Now, many believe that Satan was originally created as an angel, as the angel Lucifer, which translates light bearer, who sinned through rebellion and was cast to the earth in judgment after attempting to overthrow God. The figurative language of Isaiah, the 14th chapter, seems to indicate this, that Satan exists, and Satan's demons exist as well. They are the angels who sinned with Satan and were sent to the earth. Revelations, the 12th chapter, verses 7 to 12, teach us this. Now, in the third century, one of the early church fathers, Origen, summed up the church's perspective when he said this, and I quote, In regard to the devil and his angels, the church's teaching maintains that these beings do exist, but what they are or how they exist is not explained with sufficient clarity. This opinion, however, is held by most, that the devil was an angel, and having apostatized, he persuaded as many angels as possible to fall away with himself, And these, even to this present time, are called his angels or demons. And now what we see from the text we read today in Mark 9 is that demons are malevolent. The boy had apparently become something like a severe epileptic, although we know from the Bible that not all epileptics uh, epileptics are necessarily demonized. Matthew 4 teaches that truth. But the boy was robbed of speech, verse 17. When the demon seized control of the boy, it caused violent convulsions with a view to kill him, verse 18. And the boy foamed at the mouth, uh, ground his teeth, and became rigid or weak. Some scholars believe that the demonic spirit actually accessed the same centers in the brain where an epileptic-type seizure could have been caused by the spirit, another means. So now the father brought the son to Jesus for his healing, exclaimed that he is possessed by an evil spirit. Now this translation is somewhat unfortunate because the Greek terms 
used to describe people having demons are imprecise and actually difficult to translate. The, the, the English word possessed conjures up uh, ideas and images of the exorcist, people being completely, totally captive by the devil and, in, and, and being under his absolute control. But the actual term used in the Bible for having a demon would more literally be translated demonized or demonization, to have a demon. The word does not define the kind or the quality of the illness, that is, to what extent the demon has influence or has affected the person. And so the concept of possession or total control is an inadequate term to describe these kinds of interactions, what demons do. A Christian can't be demon-possessed in the sense of of being owned because we are bought with a price, the blood of Christ, and we belong to him, Christ followers do. Other words that would more accurately describe what's happening here, these kinds of phenomena, would be affliction or oppression, uh, bondage or stronghold. And these words would imply varying degrees of demonic influence in a person's life. So demonic uh, oppression or bondage can can range from very mild on one hand to very severe in the other. But in any case, the Bible also teaches that even the most demonized have enough free will that they can respond to or reject the kingdom of God. The, the experience of the gathering demoniac in Mark 9 or Mark 5, teaches this. Well, verse 19, Jesus severely upbraided the apostles for their unbelief and inability to cast out the Spirit. You faithless people, how long must I be with you, Jesus said? How must how long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. What about you? But that kind of stings, that kind of rebuke. Uh, Jesus' response presupposes that that he expected his disciples to have enough faith to fulfill the commission that he'd already given them, to cast out the evil spirit. The disciples who had been with him, who had ministered with him, who had been a partner in, in his ministry and had no doubt witnessed and even participated you know, in the casting out of demons, now didn't have sufficient faith to cast the demon out of the boy because Jesus said they lacked sufficient faith. Who among us can't identify with that? I mean, I'm at the front of the line. I just don't feel like I have enough faith to do life or to do ministry. Many of us are in that same boat. So Jesus instructed them, okay, bring the boy to me. Verse 20, so they brought the boy. But as soon as the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into another convulsion. God's presence is like that. It can cause the darkness to manifest, and and that which has been previously hidden is now made visible. But don't assume, on the, on the other hand, that, that just because someone shrieks or there's a moan or a cry or they're shaking or falling over, that that's necessarily a demon manifesting. In many cases, that can just be very deep emotional or psychological needs that are being released. Verses 21 to 22, Jesus inquired, well, how long has this been happening? Indicating once again that as a man, he, he had limited knowledge, and so he gathered information through natural means. 
He ministered as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and earlier in the story, he'd even asked, well, how long have you guys been arguing? So he was gathering information through natural means. And in our ministry settings, it's okay to ask people for greater information, to gain clarity, so that we can more effectively partner with the Holy Spirit in our prayer exchanges. Well, in desperation, the Father reiterates his plea. Well, since he was a little boy, the Spirit's often thrown him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. You can just hear the desperation in, in this Father's voice of, of the, uh, the, the critical need that his son has of uh, wanting to be killed by the devil. And then he says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Verse 23, what do you mean, if I can? We don't know how long he paused, but then Jesus said, anything is possible if a person believes. Now, I, I just think that is so great, that powerful, all-inclusive promise by Jesus to people in desperate situations. Anything is possible. And so, friends, for that very reason, we should never, never, never give up in our desperate circumstances. Because anything is possible. You know, when we've reached the end of our resources and abilities to minister to our needs as this father had, whether it's in our own life or in our family, in our finances or in our relationships or with fear that we deal with or whatever, when we reach the end of our resources and abilities to deal with the issue, remember Jesus' encouraging promise that anything is possible. I love the the Father's honest, transparent, and humble reply. Other, ver- other translations say that it was mixed with tears. And, and the reason I, I identify with it so closely is because I see myself in it. Verse 24, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I see myself in that verse. Lord, I, I believe, but, but the part of me that doesn't believe, I need you to help me. Verse 25, Jesus responded to that man's humble, transparent, and honest reply. I believe, but help my unbelief. By identifying the spirit, that dumb spirit is what he called, and and then expelling the demon, commanding it to leave and to never return. Verse 26, with one last strike, the demon screamed, threw the boy into another convulsion, and then left. And the boy became limp and appeared lifeless, even though Jesus then stepped over and, to the amazement of the audience, raised the boy up by grabbing him by the hand. It's often true that demons will leave uh, a person with a dramatic scream or a form of exhale or spit or vomit or some combination thereof. But I've also seen them leave people quietly and without any notice or fanfare. I remember on one occasion praying for a man who uh, came up for prayer at the close of the service, who was addicted to cigarettes. And he'd wanted to be set free very desperately. And had tried everything, you know, the patch, the whatever, and had tried everything to be set free. And so we began to pray. And uh, please understand that, that not every addiction is rooted in a demonic spirit. That you, 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 It's just not a foregone clue. There are no formulas about it. But as we prayed, I, I had a sense that there was a spirit of tobacco 
And that's the reason he couldn't get set free. And so I asked him if he was open to receiving prayer for deliverance from that. And he agreed. So we prayed and, and commanded that spirit to leave. And when I cast that spirit out, immediately the area around us as we were praying filled with the smell of stale tobacco smoke. It stunk as that spirit left as he exhaled. And he was set free. And he reported to me, you know, several weeks later that, that he had literally been delivered with no more temptation to smoke cigarettes. Verses 28 to 29, one interesting postscript to this account is that Jesus indicates to his apostles who are wondering why couldn't we cast out the spirit that this kind only comes out but by prayer. Other translations read prayer and fasting. And I, there appear to be demons with more authority or greater power than others. And the Apostle Paul reflects this spiritual reality when he writes his letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He delineates these these unclear but but uh, uh, levels of authority in the realm of Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Well, in light of this text, what can we do to more fully experience the real life as freedom from demons that Jesus said is ours day of? I want to share with you in, in wrapping it up three tips. First is to recognize that we're in a spiritual battle. As Christ's followers, we are born into a conflict with Satan and his demons because attacking Christ is his primary object. And so we're in his crosshairs, as it were. We are in the war, and this is serious warfare. The kingdom of darkness is powerful, it's well-organized, and it can affect us in many different ways. It's my fundamental conviction that many people with chronic problems, spiritual or psychological, emotional, even physical, often can never receive complete healing through medical or psychological or even counseling or prayer uh, remedies because they're The root issue is demonic. And while there's great benefit in those aforementioned issues, until we address the root cause, there can never be a total or complete healing. Now, in this spiritual battle, Satan and his demons can attack us in a number of ways. The first is temptation. A scripture speaks of every Christ follower's struggle between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh otherwise translated as the evil nature or the unseen evil nature. Um, the sinful nature is a way the NIV translates it. And, and we all know we're no strangers to this conflict, this internal conflict of being tempted. James 1.13 says, let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, but he's, he's tempted when he's drawn away by his own internal desire. And so we're, we're, we're tempted by the, this battle of of the flesh and the spirit. There are also temptations that come directly from the enemy. There are occasions in the scripture uh, where where Satan attacks people directly. Jesus was attacked by the enemy directly in his experience in the wilderness. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 were literally tempted by the devil. And so I just think of it this way. The world, the flesh, and the devil all work in concert to draw us away into sin and ultimately death. The second way the enemy attacks in this spiritual battle is oppression. Now, this is not necessarily a temptation to wrongdoing, but anything that the enemy can do to derail or frustrate or block your faith or bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
could be an accident, sickness, calamity, a loss of something, something that's done to you, harassment or opposition of some kind. And it's interesting that God does allow the enemy to attack us in the forms of trials that seek to keep us from having a healthy relationship with God and others. And in some cases, it's precisely because we're obedient that the trials come. I think of Job's story and the Apostle Paul's story as illustrative of this truth. And the third way that the enemy can attack us in this spiritual battle is demonization. The enemy can attack by getting a grip on our personalities or our physical lives through demonic spirits. And in this sense, demons can have degrees of control over our thinking and our actions. The demons gain access and influence and control in a number of ways through repeated and unrepented sin, particularly uh, the sins of the flesh that are left unguarded and then can become a habitual stronghold. Drug and alcohol abuse or your involvement with the occult, serious trauma or abuse or abandonment or other sins that have been perpetrated against us. And in some cases, we can even inherit spirits because of our family lineage in the bloodlines. And in some way that we don't really understand, these spirits are in us because they use our minds and our bodies and our personalities as their living place. Our bodies become their their home. And in this sense, we believe that Christians and non-Christians alike can be demonized. Now, through temptation, opposition, and demonization, we'd have to say the spiritual battle is real. First tip. Second tip is to believe that the real life that God says is ours to have, the John 10.10 life that Jesus came to provide for us, is wholeness of every kind and especially freedom from the devil. God wants to set us completely free from the influence and work and the effects of the enemy and his demons in our lives. Now, while we have a healthy regard for the enemy, nevertheless, his power in our lives has been broken at the cross. The Apostle Paul teaches us this in Colossians, the second chapter. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And the faith that Jesus is looking for, albeit weak and in, incomplete at times, is just a simple trust in him. Friends, he's looking for us to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and protect and deliver us as greater than the power of the devil to tempt and deceive and to harm us. We can grab a hold of that. So believe that the life that God wants for us is free from the enemy. And then the last tip, the third tip, is don't be looking for a demon under every rock or behind every flat tire. But when you find one, cast it out. 
Now, we should not be preoccupied with the devil. Neither do we need to be afraid or paranoid about him. You know, when we, we look at the book of Acts, the, the, the record of the early church, it indicates that those people were preoccupied with the sovereign God. They prayed to God. They didn't, they didn't spend time battling spirits and principalities and powers and rebuking this and demanding that and, and binding this and binding that. They prayed to the sovereign God and trusted God to deal with the devil. They weren't preoccupied or fearful uh, with, with the enemy. They remained positively focused on God instead of negatively focused on the devil. And that's what I want to live. Positively focused on God instead of negatively focused on the devil. Now, at the same time, I want to encourage all of you to pray regularly for the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits so that we can actually see what is the root cause of the difficult trials that come our way, the temptations or opposition or the demonization that we encounter in our lives or the lives of others. And we need God's discernment. Is this a a demonic spirit or not? For instance, not every sickness is caused by a demon. Scripture makes a distinction between the natural and demonic causes. Jesus, in, in his ministry, occasionally prayed for a person with epilepsy and on other occasions cast out a spirit. To the outside, they looked the same. But he saw through the the discerning of spirits that the Holy Spirit was revealing that the root cause in those two cases was different. And so we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. You can't lay hands on and heal something that needs to be cast out. On the other hand, you can't cast out what needs to be healed. And so we need the wisdom of the Lord. There are no formulas in the healing ministry. Now, when you find that a demon is present, when God reveals that it, through the gift of discernment and it, it becomes clear, um, and, that, and if the people are open to it, then the spirits can be cast out with a simple and direct command in Jesus' name, always treating people with dignity and respect because of the object that God loves. In this case, you, you just ask the demon, like Jesus did, to identify itself you, you don't need to raise your voice or shout or get dramatic. You, you address the demon that's identified itself by just saying something like this. In Jesus' name, I command you, spirit of blank, to leave and never come back. Now, that exchange may take some time for it to actually happen. Uh, it may not happen instantaneously. There, that, that spirit may, may resist. And so that prayer exchange may take a, a, a little bit of time. And the first time that ever happens to you, you may be somewhat startled and surprised, and that's okay. You just go get some help with people who have ministered in this area before, and we're going to be glad to offer our assistance, and in in days ahead, we'll be offering much more specific training on, on what you do when you bump up against a demonic stronghold. So, what have we seen so far in these three weeks? Let me wrap it up with this. Friends, Jesus wants you free. We've seen that real life that Jesus purchased for us is a life free from sin and its suffocating grip through bondage and rebellion and guilt and shame. We've seen that he wants us free from sickness and oppression uh, in, in our physical body and wants wholeness in every area. And today we've seen that, that real life is freedom from the devil, his demons, and all the oppression that they wreck in our lives. So God, we just say thank you for uh, the fact that you, you want us to be free, that real life is freedom. And we thank you, Lord, for the freedom that you've, that you've brought through Christ. Freedom from sin, freedom from sickness, and freedom from the enemy's oppression. Lord, we believe 
but we, we know that we, we lack faith to see it fully manifest. So help the parts of us that do not yet believe. And may we experience, Lord, in our lives and our families and people that we love and share Christ with a greater measure of the freedom that you've purchased for us at Calvary. And now, Lord, as we offer to you our, our heart and our, and our lives in song and through the offering, we pray that you receive these for what they are, tokens that say we love you and want our lives to count for you in your name. Amen.